This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me here again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald. This is my host show, Living Fearlessly, with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, I'm super jazzed, particularly jazzed with this guest today. Our guest joining us is Garrett John Laporto. And for the sake of uh, listenership and how expansive we are, I'm just going to plug a little bit about who John is before I turn it over to unscripted dialogue, as I always do. So who is John? Well, what I can tell you about John is that he is a countercultural messenger, inventor, media artist, author, and activist. Garrett John Laporto has reached tens of millions of people with his inspiring goosebump evoking videos. He has been written about in the New York Times, Slate, Salon, Vice, the London Financial Times and the Boston Globe and many other national newspapers. He and his projects have been featured on national television, including CNN and ABC. And there's so much more we're going to cover in the show. So I want to thank you very much, Garrett, for taking time out of your hectic schedule for joining myself and the listeners today on Living Fearlessly. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. And, you know, I've been doing my homework on you, and I have to say I don't believe in coincidences, which I'm quite sure you probably don't as well. And before I connected the dots on who you were specifically uh, and wanting to seek you out as a prospective guest on my radio show, I long ago, and I don't know how I didn't make this connection, but I was uploading your videos to my Facebook page years ago before I even realized that you were the person who did those videos. I was looking at other aspects of who you are and what you do. And then when I started connecting the dots in my research and looking at all your videos, it's like, that's the guy. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's the guy. So I just want to say, you know, John or Garrett, I know that, you know, you probably hear this from uh, many people and, and based on your repertoire, your portfolio, I know that you've been extensively interviewed and you've got huge listenership, huge followership. Uh, so there's probably no original sentiments that I can express to you that you haven't already heard and been told. But I just want to say, you know, I'm blessed for all the radio guests that I've ever had and I take away huge nuggets from all of them. Uh, I'm very selective with the guests that I do bring onto my radio show. And I've been very fortunate that I've had goosebump moments, but you're a goosebump person. Like you really are a goosebump person. And I just want to say that I absolutely love and respect everything that you stand for, everything that you represent, and the bright light that you continue to emanate into this world, particularly during these times. So I want to thank you for your contributions, for your leadership, and for the gift of who you are. Wow. Much appreciated, Lisa. Well, very true, very true. And people know me. I, I don't, I don't shoot smoke up people's arses. It's like I either like you or I don't. But um, 
So I just want to say in reading some of your background story, and I don't want to take too much away from you telling your own story, but I just want to say the things that really stick out and why I believe you embody living fearlessly and such a perfect guest for my show is, you know, when we go back to the beginning, the inception of your journey and how you were a very artistic, very musical child, and that's really what you wanted to gravitate towards in your vocation uh, and how you chose to use your time and endeavor to live your life of passions. And then that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to go play a piano bar in Australia. That's what you deemed to be your happy place. And your parents and your guidance counselors kind of said, no, you're a mathematical genius. And they persuaded you to move away from the arts and the music and encouraged you to go towards engineering. And then fast forward to, okay, I'll do what my parents and my guidance counselors uh, feel is best for me. And then you did. You went to school. And then your last semester, out of a five-year program, computer engineering, you drop out. <laughs> you drop out. And you had other plans in store for yourself based on, you know, the, the likes of Bill Gates and Ben from Ben & Jerry. So let's hear about this. Let's hear about all this yummy stuff. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I mean, first of all, I was hoodwinked into getting into uh engineering because I wanted to be a filmmaker, and I, I guess as you've seen from my videos, I'm still passionate about that. Yes. And my uh, guidance counselor comes up to me in the hall one day and said, "Well, who, who are your heroes in filmmaking?" And I said, "Well, you know, Steven Spielberg for one." And he goes, "I knew, I knew that." And I said, "Yeah, I think I told you that before." He said, "Did you know what Steven Spielberg majored in?" And I said, "Film." And he said, "No, he was an engineering major." And I was like, really? He's like, how do you think he knew how to make all those great special effects? So I was sold on engineering from that. Uh huh. Took me a few years to realize that Steven Spielberg dropped out of engineering his first semester. I <laughs> <laughs> never looked back. I <laughs> never looked back. Went to film school or started making films. I don't know what, but he didn't, he didn't, uh, stick through an engineering program. I did. Um, but then towards the end of my program, and I could have graduated, but I started my first uh, business in the dorm rooms at my college, and uh, and I realized all my heroes had dropped out of school, and I kind of on a dare dropped out um, my last semester, which was <laughs> – my parents were so pleased. I bet. <laughs> but – but we were killing it in, in with my first startup, and, it, and we had a good run. And um, do I regret it? I don't think I do. I, I, there have been moments in my life where I would have liked to be able to say on my resume that I, I graduated and all that. But truthfully, um, my life has been very entrepreneurial, and mm-hmm. um, and I, yeah, I haven't looked back. So. Well, let's just say your resume stands out from the majority and and in a glowing way, in a positive way, in a way that you can be proud of yourself because you really stepped into it, Garrett. And, you know, when we talk, we'll get into the way seers and the movement and what that's all about. But clearly you are ahead of your time. I really, really believe that. And no ego, I believe, in, in saying this. And I don't speak for people, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that you realize to the degree that you're self-actualized. The life that you've led, the, the, the intuitive, the instinctual choices in which you've made, going against the grain at such a young age, being so close to completing the stereotypical path in life, engineering no less, Um you know, so the fact that you've done that and you've navigated and maneuvered your life so beautifully for it to be what it is today and for us to have this 
this interview and talk about all these accolades, which isn't about accolades. It's it's about the fact that you're honoring yourself and honoring your journey. And, and in doing so and in choosing your journey to be exactly what it is, you are really lighting a fire amongst everyone on this planet. And uh, especially in the culture that we live in, political times and otherwise, uh, people are hungry for it. People are hungry for it. So I don't know if you've seen an increase in your viewership or your followership, um, but I don't think there would be any coincidence attached to that, personally speaking. But um, let's talk about when you were on campus. So when you were actually going to university college and you got approached by Microsoft Research. Let's talk about that. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so they they approached me and gave me a riddle to solve, and um, I solved it very quickly, and then they gave me another, and I solved that one quickly, and then they asked me to, and this was just a, at a job fair, they, mm-hmm. they asked me to, to come do an interview with them, so I did that, at which point they gave me a few more riddles, which I solved quickly, uh, and then they flew me out to Redmond, Washington, for a full day and a half of interviews and um I got the sense that they were going to be asking me these riddles so I spent time just doing lots of riddles of that nature and exercising my mind to be able to solve them uh as efficiently as possible and I have a knack for it but then there's there's actually a muscle I think that we can develop in our in our minds about um solving out of the box problems and these are these are things where the solution isn't obvious and the thing that you would immediately jump to the, the conclusion you would immediately jump to is generally wrong and they want to know if you can think laterally kind of get around get around the roadblock and find an elegant solution to what seems like an impossible problem i got good at doing those so good that my i just started to solve weird things in my life issues with my car that i had always had always bugged me i was I was like, oh, wait a second, I can just do it this way. And, and things started to get really um, easier uh, as I was doing this kind of exercise. So I go out to Washington, and, um, and I spent this day interviewing with them, and they kept throwing these harder and harder challenges at me, and I, and I was able to solve all of them. And then they started um, throwing the same challenge that they'd thrown at me earlier in the day. I'm like, you, you already gave this to me, and they – eventually came back to me and confided they they thought I was cheating and they were trying to see if I was cheating I wasn't they <laughs> said it was you know you're either a genius or you're cheating and I, and I'm like well not really either I just happened to be good at solving these problems and I you know I've trained my brain to to do it um at which point they hired me I worked at Microsoft research down the hall from Bill Gates got to go to his house and wow. spend some time like sharing ideas with him and it, it was a great experience um, and it really just goes to show if you exercise your mind in a particular way, our minds are very elastic and you can develop um, pretty impressive problem solving skills over just a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And do you believe that exercising that muscle would also entail deconstructing and deprogramming? Um, it, 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 it definitely means suspending your programming. So, what, you know, a lot of times uh, these riddles come at you, and the reason they're designed this way is to, um, you know, if you have the Harvard MBA who's heavily programmed, they're going to fail on these riddles. They're going to say it's impossible or, you know, they can't figure it out. If, if, you're, um, if you're really good at regurgitating the programming, that's going to stand in your way of solving these types of problems. And the reason these problems 
have been used for interviews is they want people who can be great problem solvers, who can take what seems like an intractable problem and find uh, the, you know, the, the solution that's, um, that, that doesn't seem to be there. And so it means suspending your programming, definitely. And it also means just exercising that will to think, that will to really find the solution. And the goosebumps actually help. Uh, you know, we're talking about how, you know, my videos evoke goosebumps. There's yeah. a spiritual, there's a spiritual practice that I've been devoted to, which, where the goosebumps are kind of my, uh, honing beacon you know it's, it's like i when i feel the goosebumps that's like the ring of truth and i know i'm on the right track and and you can use that to to solve your problems in life uh there's like there's some sort of divine inspiration i think we all have access to which is that stroke of genius which is um something that's uh almost like a spiritual uh quality or uh a form of self-transcendence that anyone can tap into and get these kind of beyond the box ideas, these sort of uh, solutions from on high. Well, I love what you said about goosebumps because more than likely most people, they think of goosebumps, they see it more as a reaction to something, but the way in which you preface that, it sounds like more like it's a proactive barometer for knowing you're on the right track or reaffirming for yourself that you're on the right track with self-truth. Yes. Yeah. So that was beautiful. I've never heard it quite captured like that at all. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Now, when we, t- when you talked about Bill Gates again, based on some of the research I've done on you, when you talk about Bill Gates and Ben from Ben and Jerry's as being, uh, tangible mentors of yourself, one of the things that you identified that you were very drawn to and the idea of wanting to embark upon becoming an entrepreneur was the fact that they had honed it so well that they had become these types of people who chose to use their gifts and talents in order to pay it forward and to be of service. And so when you saw how they were with their employees, when you saw to the degree that they were philanthropists, that really spoke to you on, that's why I want to get behind this. Is that correct? Well, definitely Ben from Ben and Jerry's for sure. And at the time that I um, got to meet Bill Gates, he was still running Microsoft. He hadn't really fully stepped in. Although he was actively engaged in philanthropy, he hadn't um, made it his full-time uh, mm-hmm. devotion. Yeah, but Ben from Ben and Jerry's was actually a great mentor of mine. I tried to start a socially responsible business right out of college, and he was there to um, <clears throat> help me uh, get past the, the the social programming that makes you just want to do things for because it can make the most money. Uh, mm-hmm. So often I'd come to him with these harebrained ideas about ways we could make a killing in the dot-com boom and things like that, and he'd go, well, what for? And I'd go, because... <laughs> It's going to be amazingly successful. And I, yeah, yeah, but what, why? What for? And, and I keep answering that question because like we could do it and we've got all the resources and this is teed up for us. He said, yeah, but what for? And mm-hmm. eventually get to, oh, this is, there's no social value to doing this and there's no spiritual value to doing this. So what for? And that saves yeah. you a lot of time, you know? Beautiful. And so let's talk about the company that you spearheaded. You founded, uh, co-founded, you founded and it was your first startup and <clears throat> it became immensely successful, but it kind of overlapped with the timing of you having then a nine month old child uh-huh. and people that you worked with, your employees, they were quite burnt out and it was just, 
the results were there. Everything was working in your favor. For somebody who endeavors to start up a business, a successful company, it was truly right on the right track. And yet you started to feel conflicted by the fact that it was either I continue to grow the business or this is perhaps going to cost me my family. And if I remember correctly, you had cited that you were working well over 80 hours per week and, and you just, you weren't seeing your child. Um, so tell us about what happened. You went to your, you went to your employees and you had what conversation and what came out of that? Um, yeah, well, just to give it a little bit more backstory, um, my wife and I had our son young. We chose Mm -hmm. that. That was on purpose, but we were young. And so she really didn't have her, her friends were still out partying as, you know, just out of college and, you know, life was, um, you know, very different for her friends than it was for her. So she was kind of isolated at home or she could hang out with women who were, you know, dozens of years older than her who were kind of in the same place. Um, so, so there was that kind of isolation that she was dealing with at the same time we had a nine month old child and I'm off, you know, 80 to a hundred hours a week trying to, you know, conquer the universe in business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't, that worked out to, it was, you know, it was not a good situation for her. It was, um, I was kind of abandoning my post as a father and a husband, uh, trying to build this company. And I had a realization, um, right on the heels of a, a little vacation we tried to take that I needed to change things drastically. So I went to my staff and said, Hey, guys, I can't keep working like this. Um, but I also don't want to let you all down. So I need somebody to step forward and uh, take the reins. You know, I'll, I'll help you, but, you know, I, I need someone to also kind of be putting in the, the kind of focus that I have so that we can keep this thing going. Well, at the time, this was at the, the end of the dot-com boom, and people didn't realize that it was taking extraordinary effort to keep um, this business strong and alive and growing. Um, they didn't realize that that was necessary for for them to keep getting their salaries. They thought they could just take a job with another company and get a raise. That's kind of <laughs> the atmosphere of the time that was collapsing. And I knew it was collapsing, but the, my staff just seemed to be uh, uh, unwilling to, to see that. And so when I asked for someone to step forward, they all stepped backwards. And I said, well, you know what this means. Like, we're probably going to have to start laying people off. Um, and and no one seemed to mind. So we, I think we all said, like, we were just like, you know what? We had a, we worked hard, you know, our, we, we go, you know, there's an old, uh, an old, uh, principle I learned from Bill Gates where, you know, someone, uh, worked for 12 hours, you know, they got it, get in at 9am and work till 9pm and they're leaving. Bill would say to them, Oh, you're only working a half day. <laughs> So we had that, we had that kind of attitude in, in our offices, and I definitely did participate in burning out uh, some of my best employees. And I think we were all just fried. We we're all just ready to take a vacation. So that's what we did. We folded the company uh, and took a break. And uh, that's when I got the chance to uh, really focus on writing my first book, which was dedicated to my son. Lovely. And that book was The Da Vinci Method, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that book. Why was that pivotal and why at that time? Well, uh, I just had a good run with my first startup and I realized that 
uh, you know, through that, I realized that the qualities that make for a great entrepreneur, the qualities of Bill Gates and Ben from Ben and Jerry's and Richard Branson and a bunch of, uh, great, uh, founders that I met through my travels all seemed to share were also traits that were heavily frowned upon in academia and school and even society at large. And, and I, you know, I, I kind of took that in stride, but that when I saw my son, who was, you know, a couple of years old at the time, also expressing those traits, I go, oh, you know, if I had six months left to live, what would I want to leave behind? And what I wanted to leave behind is sort of a roadmap for my son to kind of get out from the uh, programming of society that says, you know, you should be a good linear uh, student, do what you're told, be on time. <laughs> all that stuff and say, no, you weren't made for that. You were made to be impetuous and risk-taking and brave and, um, you know, march to the beat of your own drummer and trust your own instincts and, you know, you don't have to show your work uh, and all of those things. And that, that was sort of the beginning of me uh, just, you know, just in case anything ever happened to me, I wanted to leave something behind that my son could find someday and uh, get him out from under the uh, – the veil of society's uh, insistence on everyone conforming. Beautiful. What a gift and what a legacy to leave behind. And again, how forward thinking of you for that to be precisely the message and the legacy you would want to leave behind for your son. Uh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, you know, let's talk about the Wayseer movement. Let's talk about how that all came to be. And was it uh, spawned out of um, – a particular moment that you'll never forget? Was it uh, cumulative things that were happening for you synergistically where it just you, you got the clarity and it became that and what we now know it to be? What was it, the defining moment that catapulted it into the Wayseer movement? Uh, it was, you know, I put out the Da Vinci Method and we had this um, thriving online community of people who had read the book and uh, were just sort of finding how to retool their lives in alignment with sort of this watershed of, hey, we don't have to, um, we don't have to conform. Not only we don't have to conform, but like there's all these qualities about us, the impulsiveness, the distractibility. How do you harness that into being successful? Um, and so we, we had a, a lot of that, but we also had people who, uh, just got the message, hey, uh, just be free, do whatever you want, you know, let your impulses guide you like the, you know, and there's a truth to that your impulses can guide you towards really great outcomes, but mm -hmm. they can also guide you towards just being a, a, a train wreck. <laughs> I mean, <there's>, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what I started to realize is that my <laughs> first book um, was all about freedom and trust your impulses and just go wild and, and what I saw in, in the wake of that is that for some people that worked really well and for others, they were just a disaster. Um, <laughs> following that and I, and I needed to figure out a way to, one thing that I have internally that's always helped me and my impulses work is that I do have this deep inner devotion to a higher power. And it, it is that, like when I feel those goosebumps, when I feel that ring of truth, I know that I'm connected to something beyond myself, an intelligence beyond my own, you know, ego's limited intelligence, beyond my own conscious intelligence, a sort of a super consciousness that, that can guide my actions and will trigger in me impulses to do the right thing that, that will just miraculously 
work in a way that I could never have anticipated. Uh, but in, I had, I had failed to communicate the importance of staying connected to that in my first book. So the, the follow on was uh, the, we were calling each other Da Vinci's. Uh, that's that, that was the word I had coined for the first book. And the reason it was called the Da Vinci method was I wanted, uh, school teachers when they see this Im- impulsive, distractible, troublemaking child, uh, in their, in their classroom that they don't just label them as troublemaker or, you know, uh, disordered, but, but to have something that reminds the teacher to see the genius in them. And so I wanted to relabel all these kids Da Vinci types. Um, Hallelujah. Beautiful. And that was the idea behind the Da Vinci method. Unfortunately, uh, the Da Vinci code was, was, uh, you know, blowing up at the same time. And, uh, and so, you know, we didn't, we didn't quite reach that critical mass of people adopting it as a word for, uh, to express the brilliance of, uh, children who think differently. Um, but at the same time in this little community, we were, we we're using that label. I wanted to relabel it. I felt like, you know, it was giving this grandiosity to, uh, people who just were really getting very, they were getting free, but they were getting very random and they were calling themselves Da Vinci's and they were thinking of themselves as these, like, <laughs> you know, amazing geniuses. And I'm going, what you're expressing is not genius. It's insanity. And, <laughs> and, and, so, <laughs> and so it's like, how do we pull people across that? You know, there's a fine line between genius and, and insanity. How do you pull people uh, across the line from insanity back and in, fully into the realm of genius? And, uh, and I felt like, well, first of all, we need to relabel this because, um, you know, we want people to, to, as part of this label, to be really focused on this, uh, this higher way, this better way of doing things. And so that's where Wayseer came from. It's, it's, you know, almost every mystical tradition has started as, uh, an acknowledgement of this, um, transcendent, uh, thing called the way. And it's like th- that there is this transcendent way of being, this transcendent way that all of life and nature works that uh, one can tap into and it, it's pure grace. Um, and so, you know, early Christianity was actually called the way and early Buddhism was also called the way and Taoism, the way. And it's all, there was always the way and the way is this, you know, transcendent, graceful way of going that um, everything from birds and flowers and water and everything kind of has this, this just transcendent order to it. And that's, that's the way. And then one, you know, one who might be deeply, uh, Christian might, you know, there's, there's this essence called the Holy Spirit, which, um, again, was originally called the way. It's like, this is, um, so there is this transcendent intelligence that we can all tap into, which is the way. And I believe way seers are these, uh, people on one end of the spectrum, and there's a spectrum of neurological repression. Some people are very neurologically repressed, and what that means is that their brains are really hardwired to follow whatever social programming they're given. And then there's, on the other side of the spectrum, there's the lunatics or the white spheres, <laughs> and, and, and these people... The, the programming just doesn't stick because their brains are not neurologically repressed, meaning all of your unconscious impulses and much of the unconscious material that is censored in a very um, stabilized or 
um, neurologically repressed brain, a very, a very normal, uh, buttoned up kind of person, they're never going to experience these impulses and this unconscious material because their, their brains literally censor it before it ever reaches their consciousness. Mm-hmm. Whereas on our side of the spectrum, the lunatics or the wayseers, um, the, or uprisers or whatever you want to call it your, yourself, it, you know, this side of the spectrum is people who are just bombarded with all of this unconscious material, all of these crazy impulses. You're very aware of them and you have to learn to consciously, uh, repress those things. And, um, and it can drive you crazy. Yes. <laughs> and, and it can make you neurotic because you're trying to, you know, it's like you have to keep, uh, C.S. Lewis talked about there being a door to the cellar and, and the cellar is full of, uh, all this unconscious material, um, including rats, which are like, you know, sort of, uh, the, the nasty stuff that's stuck in our unconscious. And, you know, people who are wasters have to like firmly keep, there's no latch on that door. You just have to keep closing that door just so you can, you know, stay focused on whatever it is. Just so you can like get, get your work done and be a reasonable person. <laughs> so, so, so true. But, but the interesting thing is when you open that door, there might be rats and that's the sort of the nasty impulses and the nasty material, but there's also the way shines from that place too. Like the, the good impulses can come uh, and be evoked through that. So the 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 great artist is one who can open that door and let all that material come through and deal with that material and make something beautiful out of it. And the great inventor also um, opens that door. And uh, you know Thomas Edison and Leonardo da Vinci and Einstein all talk about ways that they tapped into their unconscious to get solutions to intractable problems. So there is this. Um, this genius that comes with being able to open that door, but there's also the insanity that comes with being able to open that door. But if you can align yourself with this higher calling, this transcendent, this sort of self-transcendence that opens you up to the way, that's where the way can, can guide your use of that power in a, in a very positive direction. Beautiful. And when we talk about the way, let's not forget about the Milky Way. <laughs> maybe that's where it comes from that's where it comes from the milky way that's um, that full center of our galaxy that yes. part we haven't quite been invited to yet not yet i'm still waiting mm-hmm. <laughs> but going back to what you said earlier in uh you know in talking about the books and and uh you know putting the the reminder out there to the teachers who might in, in fact be experiencing a child who's displaying things that we might otherwise deem to be behavioral or or you know not conforming have you since been invited by these teachers to the school or to the classroom uh, yeah i've i've worked with a a number of teachers uh, often my son's teachers uh <laughs> to try to <laughs> facilitate this uh this you must other be a real treat. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, coincidentally, I actually have a, a good friend who uh, grew up in the same town as me who started a program called Rivers and Revolutions. His name is Michael Goodwin, and he uh, he's really put into practice a lot of the principles that we both uh, saw as needed. Um, you know, I'm talking about them in books and on and on talk shows like yours. He's actually putting them to work in school systems and doing it very effectively. So he's got a program. He was one, voted one of the top 50 teachers in the country, and he's got a, a program called Rivers and Revolutions, which 
really focuses on the will of the student to help them find what it is they really are called to doing and gives them a chance to operate in nature and uh, take, you know, take walks in nature and really connect with uh, their, the deep essence within them that will guide them towards uh, being, you know, uh, generous uh, contributors to uh, our society. And, um, I, you know, with all the reading and work I've done around education, I think he's right in line with um, Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, who also tried to start their own type of school. And um, we also have uh, Bronson Alcott, who did start his own school. And the, the interesting thing is all these guys really acknowledge these same principles, um, but all of them failed. And the reason they failed is because... <laughs> But there's an interesting reason they failed because this type of education really works well for the wastier type, you know, and, but that's only about 20% of the U S population. And that's actually high for worldwide. It's more like 10%, but the U S has attracted so many pioneering souls. So, and there's a genetic element to it. So the U S has attracted sort of this natural selection towards the adventurer, you know, the, the, the immigrant who's willing to throw, away their entire uh, existence for this American dream, uh, that's a huge uh, leap of faith, and that's the kind of thing that a wayseer would do, and there's a genetic underpinning to this neurological um, setup where you're not repressed. So we have about 20% of the U.S. population fits this wayseer um, mentality, this wayseer uh, type, and these types of schoolings work really well for this uh, this kind of person who is uh, working with a kind of inner guidance and Socratic method works really well for uh, for wayseers and nature works really well for wayseers and getting out of the box works really well for wayseers and tapping into your own will uh, and what it is you're really called from the inside to do it works really well for wayseers um, but it works but stabilizers would I say the other end of the spectrum um, and that's eighty percent of the population generally go, uh, this doesn't make any sense. Can you just tell me what to do? <laughs> so, how so do you, how do you quantitate that 20%? What, what's the barometer of measurement for that to, to be able to say 20%? How does that, how's that verified? It's, you know, it's a weird, um, line in the sand that's artificial. Uh, we, it is verified. I mean, I base it on different, um, uh, statistics like around the Myers-Briggs personality types. So the, the P and, and the I in, in the Myers-Briggs. Uh, so the intuitive types. Uh, so pi, pi 3.14. Is that kind uh, of yeah, There you go. No. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, there's, you know, there's been both genetic studies and uh, personality studies that show that there is a, a bit of a, a grouping you can delineate around the intuitive type from uh Myers Briggs or the uh the non there's a judging versus perceiving type in Myers Briggs and the perceiving type. So if you have intuitive types and perceiving types, like that's really um sort of the sweet spot of this uh you know type of individual. And and you can you could see that there is a number that's somewhere between twenty and twenty five percent of the US population that fits into that grouping. But at the same time, it's a spectrum. So, you know, there could be somebody a little bit further along that spectrum that, you know, if you had to draw a line in the sand, it would be 
you know, 26% of the population. And there could be someone who's really deep as a waster, like the really, truly great artists and mystics and uh, revolutionaries who they might be really far. And you might be able to say, you know, I have a, a business partner who said, you know, you say it's 10 or 20%, but really the ones who are going to be amazingly successful, I think that's only like, you know, one tenth of 1%, you know, it's one in a thousand. And, and, um, <clears throat> and he had a point. So there's, there's varying degrees of this type of, uh, uh, you'd say like, how repressed are you mentally? I mean, that's really what it is. How open are you mentally? The more open you are, uh, and that's another way of drawing a line in the sand. There's a, there's a, a psychological um, component called, you know, openness uh, that has also been studied. And, and the more open you are, you're open to everything, but that's what makes you wild and crazy and brilliant and intuitive. And, um, and so if you're on that side of the spectrum, that's what I like to deal with. Um, but it is a spectrum. So. And so when you say open, do you, do you equate openness with receptivity specifically or taking that a, a step further in terms of vulnerability, openness or a combination of the two? It's, it's willingness to be vulnerable. It's receptivity, yeah. but it's also willingness to like someone who's open is you're open to new experiences. You're open to, I'll try being vulnerable. You know, I'll take that leap of faith. I'll do that uh, thing that's going to rattle my world. Um, and, and so, and, and even within groups of what we would call wayseers, you'll find like, you know, a rock band is generally going to be a group of all wild, crazy wayseers. But then even <laughs> within that, even within that band, you're going to have the stabilize, the people who are more stabilizers of the band and the ones who are more lunatic fringe of the band. So, you know, mm -hmm. generally you'll have like, um, like an Aerosmith, you know, Steven Tyler is an absolute freaking lunatic and like, <laughs> They had trouble reining them in all the time, but, you know, but they're all wasteers, they're all adventurers, they're all guys who would, like, join a rock band and, like, go for it that way, but, mm -hmm. you know, again, you've got, you've got a spectrum within the spectrum, and, um, and it's funny how when in group formation, the people who are more stable, you know, are more stable in the group, that tends to polarize them to becoming even more stabilizers and the ones who are more wild in a group, it tends to polarize them to be even more wild. And, and then that dynamic forms where, and, and the beauty of evolution is, you know, if, if DNA was just all mutations, it, it would just crumble. Not, nothing good would have come of, you know, evolution and, and life with, with DNA. But if you have just the right amount of mutations, you know, if you have just the right mutation rate, you have this amazing uh, creative force that comes through uh, natural selection and DNA and evolution. And that's kind of what you want in any um, societies. You want enough stabilizers to keep society running and working and enough wild wastier types to bring in new ideas and usher in change. Um, and if the balance is off, then you either get a, a, a totally insane society where nothing uh, is held together or you get a society that's far too stable where uh, things that really should change aren't changing. Okay, well, I have two simultaneous thoughts that came to mind, and I really don't want to lose either one of them. But I'll start with um, – so rather than looking at the wayseers versus the people who are non-wayseers, do you not think those dualities can simultaneously exist within each of us? Oh, yeah, they can. 
yeah, where it doesn't have to be two pods of distinct <clears throat> categories of people, but maybe just honing it more so that you have that, if you want to use the word balance, I struggle with the word balance, but the combination, uh, the, what would be complementary from either section and merging it or pulling it out of yourself and knowing well, that you, yeah. In fact, you know, uh, if you, you wake up in the morning and you have a, a, a strong cup of coffee, uh, or, or three, you know, uh, you're pushing yourself in, into the stabilizer, uh, realm. You know, you got, if you got to get your paperwork done or the, you know, some project that you've been procrastinating on and you, you, uh, you get all caffeinated or you use Adderall or Ritalin to, you know, get yourself to do the work. Um, you know, that's a chemical way of pushing your brain into the sort of stabilizer, uh, repressive, uh, regime of getting stuff done in a linear way. And then if you're, uh, an artist who is, you know, wrestling with your creativity, you're just not feeling creative or inspired or whatever, you know, there's a lot of artists who've turned to drugs, LSD, um, you know, ayahuasca, uh, even just smoking dope, like all that pushes your brain into the more open, receptive, um, wonderland of wastiness yeah. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay we won't go down the path of lsd stories on this show <laughs> but timothy leary yes you know, i think was a straight laced dude who you know f- discovered lsd and it turned him into a wastier and he thought uh everyone should be just dropping acid turn on <laughs> tune in drop out yes. everyone should do this and he was considered, you know, the most dangerous man in America because of his uh, conviction that everyone should be uh, dropping acid. And uh, I think he was both onto something and they were right. Like if everybody became a wasteer in a society, the society would just come <laughs> apart at the hinges. So he probably was the most dangerous man in America to be suggesting that everyone drop acid. Uh, it's it's uh, it's best to have... <laughs> A handful of artists right. <laughs> and lunatics amongst uh, a stable group. <laughs> oh, why am I laughing? Okay, so anyway, the other thing, and I, I think I'm, I want to try and recapture the second thing that I wanted to say, and I'll try to make this as succinct and as cohesive a thought as possible in asking you. So when we go back to the 20-25% of the Wayseers, now, if we're qualifying it, if we take the 20-25% uh, and where the majority of them, or, or what would even be considered average in terms of their outcomes, you know, the type of life they lead, what would be perceivably successful, but more importantly, success being defined of, you know, they found their happy spot in life. These people just emanate all kinds of positive em- energy as compared to the remainder of the population who don't fall within the way seer category of 20 25% who on the other hand optics wise may still look as though they're they're very successful uh you know highly elevated people but aren't necessarily have that that enlightenment or that energy or the the, the, the extra you know, what would define a way seer so if you're looking at the 20 25% is it safe to say that Majority, like a hundred percent or eighty percent of the wayseers are thriving versus the eighty percent who are non wayseers what would the percentage be of how they're actually truly doing in life ah that's 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 difficult i'm gonna just speculate here because i okay. I haven't actually done a longitudinal study on uh how you doing with your life 
Um, we should. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you anecdotally because I have uh, a large following and I'm, you know, always receiving emails and correspondence. And I do my best if someone emails me or asks me a question, I do my best to try to give them uh, some sort of enlightened response. Um, and what I do hear a lot is that if you're in this wastier group, generally, um, it's probably an 80% chance you're a frustrated artist. Um, L'artiste monk, it was called in, in France, and that literally translates to frustrated artist. And what that means is that you have this passion and this calling to create, but your um, abilities, the development of your craft, uh, the development of your ability to communicate that inspiration into the world is stunted and you're frustrated. And that stunting can come from lack of training, lack of practice. It can also come from just life situations where lack of support, you don't have the time uh, and energy to actually pursue uh, your creativity. And so you're constantly, you know, yearning to, to break free and, and, uh, and communicate that, that inspiration that you have and, in your soul, in your heart and your soul that you, you so desperately you feel like it's your calling to communicate that. And then at the same time, you're stuck in a cubicle somewhere with a mortgage to pay and kids and life and whatever. And, and, and there is that element and, and you're causing trouble at work because you're bored or you're frustrated. It's like, there's a lot of that. Um, and I think it feeds into, uh, the epidemic of addiction that we're uh, seeing in the United States that, you know, you said 20, 25%, which I gave to you, that is a U.S. number. That's a, that's unique to the United States. You might get close to that number in Australia, South Africa, Hong Kong, places where there's been a lot of immigration from other places in the world of the, of the crazy ones or these, you know, wastier types. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, Australia was a penal colony. They send all the people who broke the laws to, you know, Australia. So you could say, okay, well, these rule breakers, you know, they're, it's a country, you know, um, <laughs> it's a country full of that rule breaking gene, which is great because that makes them, again, wastier types. U United States was, again, people who were willing to risk everything for the American dream and that, uh, you know, that ingenuity and American pioneering spirit comes with that sort of genetic uh, pre, predisposition. So we do have 20, 25%, but I would say worldwide it's more like 10%. And again, uh, if you are part of that 20, 25%, um, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard road to hoe because, uh, right now, uh, our school systems don't cater to that way of thinking and don't prepare you for a successful life as a creative type and an artist. They, uh, they're preparing you to do something very linear, which, you know, your whole upbringing, you're thinking that's how you should be because that's what your teachers are kind of forcing on you. And then as you get into college these days, now there's this whole startup uh, culture. Everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and, you know, be creative. And there is a sort of um, backlash that's happening and you can see it um, in the late stages of academia where people want to be sort of that heroic creative type and do something. But unfortunately we haven't prepared our populace to do that effectively. And therefore what we have is a lot of frustrated artists who are struggling to, um, 
to live a life of conformity and a life of creativity, which are kind of polar opposites. And often the, the solution, unfortunately, that I think a lot of Americans are stuck in is addiction. And so there's many forms of addiction, whether it's um, overeating, over drinking, opiates, um, you know, shopaholism, uh, porn addiction. There's like a thousand different uh, kinds of addiction, gamble, you know, uh, g- compulsive gamblers, um, even just workaholism. Like there are so many different kinds of addiction and what addiction really is, is uh, taking that creative energy and instead of um, allowing it to be free and to lead you into some creative endeavor, you distort, you sublimate that creative energy into a repetitive, controllable outlet, which generally is like, you know, binging, binge eating or binge shopping or whatever it is, you know, binging on something, which that binging is just a way to express that frustrated energy. And not to be morose, Garrett, but what would be the the suicide rates amongst wayseers because of that level of genius or creativity or just the frustration that comes with not being able to just perhaps pop or getting frustrated with the rest of the world because there's so many people who don't see, share, vibe in the same way that makes the energy, that that the sphere that you always want to coexist in, but there's not too many people who want to be part of that. So, you know, if you're – yeah, so what are the statistics around that? Uh, Hi. I mean, I would say I I would – I'm just sort of spitballing here, but I would say wasters probably account for 90% of the suicides. They also account for 90% of prisoners, uh, you know, fit the genetic and personality traits of the, you know, put in the wasteer category. Um, I, I think you've got a very, a much, much higher risk of suicide. Uh, with wastier types, you know, orders of magnitude more than stabilizer types for a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, wasteers don't feel, they, they don't feel like, um, surrounded by people that understand them. They feel deeply misunderstood. And it's because, you know, eight or nine out of 10 people a wastier might turn to, uh, to share their innermost feelings with and what their struggle is won't understand them at all because these people are stabilizers and don't understand, almost are revolted by. Uh, mm-hmm. what, uh, yes. what makes a wasteer and, and they'll feel that, they'll internalize that. So when they are vulnerable and they choose to share, uh, their struggle with someone, there's a very high chance that that person that they chose to share it with can't even understand them and will try to shut them down in e- either explicitly or implicitly. And th- the wasteer feels that and then, you know, gets, you know, pulls in even, um, more into themselves, feels even more isolated. Uh, so that's, that's one side of it. Another side of it is because you, you're not neurologically repressed. You are constantly bombarded with all of that unconscious pain. So if there is something you went through in your life or there's some sort of, um, inner torment, uh, something that a, a stabilizer would, their brain would actually censor out so they don't ever experience it consciously. The way seer is experiencing that inner torment consciously day in and day out, every slight, every, um, you know, disconnect with, uh, with the people in their community, every embarrassment, every piece of shame, uh, you know, every piece of anger that like when someone expresses anger towards them, they, they internalize that, they feel it, they, they're exposed to that, um, incessantly. So there is a great deal of 
uh, inner healing that has to happen to keep a wastier healthy. Uh, and if they haven't learned to um, exercise those demons or do that healing, they're going to be constantly bombarded with all of this negative psychic material that they can't censor out of their consciousness because they're not hard. Their brains aren't hardwired to do it. So they're exposed uh, to what is like this inner nightmare. Um, so that's the second reason that they're very vulnerable to suicide. But then the third reason is wasteers are impulsive. Like mm-hmm. this is somebody who, you know, might just pick up a gun and shoot themselves. You know, like this is someone who could like, you know, in a moment of uh, deep desperation, like Robin Williams did, hang himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he might, 99% of the time, he might have been fine, but that one moment, he wasn't fine. He had the impulsiveness and the risk-takingness and the, uh, you know, uh, ability to shed all of the rules uh, and the limitations to commit such a horrible act. Uh, so it's like that's that's the other thing is that, you know, um, and generally wasters are very gentle souls uh, we don't want to paint them as like dangerous lunatics i would say you know 999 out of a thousand of them are or at least 99 out of 100 are actually really deeply gentle people who would never hurt another person like robin mm-hmm. williams but are willing to hurt themselves because they they feel so deeply disconnected and they feel there's something so deeply wrong with themselves because of all of that these uh inner demons that we're aware of like we see uh, the stuff that, uh, is going on in the deep unconscious of ourselves and those around us that others don't see. And, and by being exposed to that sometimes, you know, just shutting off the, shutting off the light seems like the, the easiest way out. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I, it's not anyone who's listening to this. It's not, that's not the way to go. Like find, Absolutely. Help, find a way seer to talk to, find someone who's got that same temperament as yourself, an artist, a, a creative type, a sensitive type, a mystic, someone who is on that spectrum and find someone to talk to and don't, don't stay stuck alone and isolated. Mm -hmm. Well, Garrett, I want to thank you very much for your time, everything that you've imparted here to myself and the listeners. It's been an absolute treat listening to you, dialoguing with you. We'd love to have you back at some point. We've got like literally probably a minute and a half. So what I'd like to do before I say goodbye to the listeners is if you could just uh, very quickly sum up what living fearlessly means for you. Uh, Living fearlessly is aligning with that higher power in yourself and following it. Um, And it'll take you on an adventure and that higher, you know, self-transcendence will take you on an amazing adventure of healing and grace and beauty. There will be struggle, but it'll be good struggle. It'll be the kind of struggle that, that transforms your heart and mind and, and makes you stronger for that next level of adventure. So I would say, do that, and we have a community at wayseers.org uh, where if you want to come in, we have a bunch of tools to help you with that kind of adventure, that kind of struggle, everything from the brain teasers I talked about at the beginning of the show, the riddles that helped me get smarter uh, in the beginning of my career to a bunch of workshops and talks that sort of talk about your unique uh, temperament and how to work with that to have a fuller, more beautiful life. 
Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough, Garrett, and we'd love to have you come back at a later date if you're welcome to do so, if you want to do so. Sure. Uh, to, to the listening audience, I want to say thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule once again uh, for your loyal listenership, joining myself here and Garrett John Laporto here on this lovely Friday. I look forward to touching base again with you next week. My name is Lisa McDonald. This is my show, Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Go live every Friday, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 o'clock Eastern. And thank you once again for being one of over 142,000 podcast subscribers over on iTunes and various places. Can't thank you enough. Love and gratitude to all. Continue to live fearlessly. And thank you very much, Garrett. Take care. All my best. Bye. You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. Visit her at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.